In the 1980s, following the New Hollywood movement of the 70s and the rise of the blockbuster, the door was left open for the next wave of exciting new voices in film. And the people that walked through that door weren't looking to work within the Hollywood system, as their predecessors had, but rather outside of it, often on low budgets in the hopes of pushing the envelope of what cinematic craft and storytelling could be. From coast to coast, filmmakers gathered their resources and put everything they had into these gritty, sometimes silly, but always memorable films that helped define the decade. Put on your scrunchies and pull up your leg warmers. This is 80s Indies. Today on the show, we're going to be discussing Abel Ferreira's 1981 film, Miss 45. Every day, on every street, in every city, women are insulted, abused, threatened. Miss 45 is a 1981 film directed by Abel Ferrara that follows the story of Thana, played by Zoe Tamerlis, also known as Zoe Lund, a mute garment worker who is raped twice on the same day and goes on a violent revenge spree against reprehensible men. Yes. So we, we are in the garment center in Manhattan in this film. And you don't see many films set in this specific section of New York. I've realized that when I was watching this. Mm -hmm. um, it's very specific. And um, when we were originally discussing what we, you know, what series we'd like to talk about, uh, we had discussed doing possibly New York indies uh, because so many great cult indie films take place there. But ultimately, we wanted to open up to some other films that we wanted to talk about and focus instead on a particular era in indie films. And uh, Jeremy, I feel like both you and I are, are fascinated by independent films and filmmakers uh, for obvious reasons, because we're, you know, we involved with filmmaking. Um, and I think it's a cool idea to look at them at a certain, at certain time periods. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, I think it's always interesting. Um, I think what makes the, what makes the eighties a particularly interesting time is that it's kind of sandwiched between what most people consider to be almost kind of golden ages of, um, of Hollywood cinema you know, you, you have the, the, the 70s New Hollywood movement, and then you have the, the 90s kind of Sundance generation filmmakers mm -hmm. who are, are pretty pretty widely, obviously everyone has their own opinions, but by many people considered to be two of the, the most uh, progressive, exciting film movements that have yeah. kind of ever happened. Um, mm -hmm. And then and in the middle, you have this, this kind of disparate uh, movement of, of 80s filmmakers from all over the place. Um, I know, Mark, we were discussing ahead of time that, you know, obviously there were a lot of great New York films, which is exciting, but these films really came from all over the place. Yeah, definitely. And um, we got to talk about lots of different ty types of filmmakers, which we don't normally get to in this uh, in our show. And one of them is Abel Ferreira. Um, and he's someone that I, I would like to do a series on actually in the future because he's just such an interesting filmmaker mm -hmm. um, and character in his own right. So this film, Miss 45, is his second feature film after The Driller Killer in 1979, uh, which is a, another really wild film. And I think we may return to that one if we ever do our Video Nasty series. Yes. <laughs> uh, Highly recommend. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
that that movie is great. And actually, watching this film, Miss Forty Five, made me want to rewatch that mm-hmm. movie again. Uh, and that was his first film. Although he did actually make a film before that, um, which um, you know we already said a disclaimer here. So let's just go ahead and say the title of that one. Um, that would be Nine Lives of a Wet Pussy. So that was a a uh, adult film that he is actually under a different name. He's under uh, listed under Jimmy Boy L. And uh, his regular writer, Nicholas St. John, who also wrote this film and, and many others of his, um, also wrote that film under Nicholas George. So that was technically their first film, 1976. Um, but his first, you know, I guess you'd call legitimate film or mm-hmm. however you want to look at it, was The Driller Killer. And then followed by this film, which is Miss 45 in 1981. Um, and this film is a, uh, I guess you could call it a vigilante or revenge film. Mm-hmm. It might be the first one like that that we've talked about on this show. Um, exploitation thriller, I guess you could also call it. And um, apparently it was inspired by films such as Death Wish and Taxi Driver, which I think you can plainly yeah. see. Um, also, I thought of I Spit on Your Grave. I don't know if you, if you saw that one, Jeremy. I, it's been on my list forever, but it's, it's yeah. one of those movies where I know what it's about and it's hard to get myself mm-hmm. in the mindset to want to watch it. But Yeah, it's also like if you know what it's about, you kind of you kind of know already what's going to yeah. happen. But, um, you know, it's it's um. If you're a fan of exploitation or mm-hmm. that type of film, it's it's a uh, you know it's an interesting watch and yeah and um, so this film I guess because of its subject matter was uh, critically detested on its release Miss Forty Five uh, but it has since gone on to be highly regarded among fans of underground and independent film and obviously fans of Abel Ferreira mm-hmm. the director and um, I would say it's it's definitely one of the more disturbing films that we've talked about uh, because of the subject matter mm-hmm. uh, on this show and. Um, but um, I mean, how how did most of it sit with you? Is it now? This was not your first time seeing it, right, Jeremy? You've seen this f- film before. Yeah, no, I I had seen yeah. this film before. I think it, it it worked differently for me this time than the first time I saw it. Um, yeah. I think in a more interesting way. Um, the first time I saw it, you know, and as we mentioned, this this story kind of starts with this this young lady who is mute, um, and has she, she this actress, um. Uh, Zoe Tamerless, one of the things I just am, am so impressed with is how much she, she was able to communicate um, without any dialogue. And, and yeah. also she, she kind of, for the most part, actually had a very reserved acting style. She, she could really mm-hmm. communicate you know, a lot with her eyes. Um, but, yeah. but as we mentioned, you know, the, the character that she's playing very on in the story suffers these two very violent rapes, one of which, which ends with the the perpetrator getting away the other ends with her violently murdering the rapist mm-hmm. um so we, we kind of see these two different uh, juxtaposed um traumatic scenarios that she goes through and obviously the second one she gets some kind of um vindication from fighting back and likes that feeling and decides to keep rolling with it um and i think mm-hmm. the first time i watched this film this i i, I saw it more as a revenge film um, which obviously is, is a big part of it. But watching the film now, I I looked at it, I, I was able to pick up a lot more on kind of the, tra- the traumatic aspects of it and mm-hmm. how throughout the film it, you know, it, it wasn't like, it's you know, this isn't like a, like a Tarantino revenge film where something happens and the person, you know, is like, I'm going to get revenge at all costs and they're going after yeah. one specific target. This kind is kind of like winking at the camera or anything like that. Yeah, this is kind of more just like, like a person has been broken and just can't yeah. take it anymore. And I thought some of the stuff early on in the film that uh, Ferraro did to establish her sense of dread, her sense of fear, um, and, and and those memories, you know, like the, the, the quick mm-hmm. little cuts 
to the the, yeah. the rapist face, which interestingly enough was actually played mm-hmm. by Abel Ferrara, the first <laughs> one. Ferrara. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's um, like you mentioned Quentin Tarantino. I think that's a good comparison to make. And this film, it's just much more. Uh, I, I see it as more like voyeuristic, almost that we're kind of just following her mm-hmm. and in her life and what's happening to her. So I'm going to go through the main beats of the film. Uh, but b- before I do that, I want to talk about the silent protagonist because that's a huge, huge part of this movie. Um, so Thana uh, works in the garment industry uh, as a seamstress, I believe, or just you know in some in some way with these garments and. Um, there's something about a silent or mostly silent protagonist to me that is very engaging. Uh, I was actually reminded of Ryan Gosling's character in Drive as one example mm-hmm. of that. Um, you know, and some people either kind of love it or hate it, I guess. But I find it, like I said, engaging. And um, I think because it makes the audience kind of wonder what's going on behind their eyes or inside their mind. Um, so in, in ways like that, I find it more engaging. But um, how did you think that... Um, First of all, how do you think it worked in the film? And secondly, why do you think he chose to have a silent protagonist in the film? Um, I think it I think it worked really, really well. Um, I, I was with this character the whole time, um, you know, mm-hmm. and, and and like I said before, she, she that actress can just express, you know, so much yeah, with just her right. eyes and a, and a single little look. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, but I don't know. For me, I think I, I, I thinking about it and kind of and, and I can't speak obviously to why the director and writer would make that decision. But for me, what was so interesting about her being silent the whole time is that you kind of, the only voices you get are these men who are kind of harassing her throughout. You don't really, you know, I mean, you you, you hear her coworkers kind of talking, but it's normally pretty lighthearted. They're joking around Mm -hmm. a lot. Um, but like, like the, the one scene I'm thinking of specifically is there's a scene, I want to say it's about the halfway point maybe, um, when she goes to a diner with some of her coworkers, and there's a guy there that's kind of her coworkers leave, and this guy is hitting on her, and mm-hmm. you know, he, and he just won't leave her alone, and she's just and she's not responding to anything he's saying, and he just keeps talking and talking and talking right. and talking, and it's just like be, because you're with her, you know, and even though she's she's doing, um, you know, some really violent things in this film, although you know, because it's through her point of view, they feel justified. Um, within within the world of the film um but but it's like the the way she just kind of stands there and takes it and it's just listening and listening and listening and you just you you can just feel that 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 sense of dread that like yeah. even, and, but, but oppression it's like almost like very oppressive yeah because all these voices coming at her yeah and, and you almost get the feeling that even if she could speak it would be ignored um, and for me, that's kind of why she's silent in this. It's to make a statement. You think it's like sim- symbolic almost? Yeah, it's almost like it, Like the, the the voice, the only voice she has is her forty five. It, it is the gun. It yeah. is the, the violence. Mm-hmm. It's like the, like because the, the, the kind response, the, the kind shrugging off isn't working because these men just keep coming back to her, you know, and keep mm-hmm. harassing her. But so the only way she can deal with it is to get violent and loud, which, you know, which yeah. is interesting just thinking about, you know, the nature of... Uh, protest and revolution is a lot of the time mm-hmm. it's like you see peaceful protest the peaceful silent protest which to me is kind of where she starts out the film and by the end yeah. she's you know rioting she's for the, lack of a better yeah. term <laughs> right she kind of takes a journey there mm-hmm. um yeah definitely I, I thought the silent protagonist idea really worked well in this film much like you did and also i thought it allowed for a more surreal cutting like the editing of the film mm-hmm. and uh, a more stylistic approach overall um, and some really strong imagery as well. So I think it, you know, he, he used that because uh, not only for the symbolic nature of it, but I think it just allowed him to do so many things uh, 
filmmaking wise mm-hmm. um, and acting uh, as well. Like you said, she, you know, she's so good in the film and carries it almost entirely with just her face and the look in her eyes. So, um, so it's really interesting. Um, and so the, the film, um, the journey we go on with her is kind of starts with, you know, her at work in the, in the garment section of the, of uh, New York. And she goes home or is walking home. And um, there's a mugger, uh, who's also a you know rapist who's in this really creepy clear mask um, that slightly distorts his face and it makes what is already a disturbing scene I thought even more disturbing and like you said Jeremy apparently that was Ferreira himself in the mask um, and so that happens and it's very disturbing and then she comes home and it happens again but this time someone's actually in her apartment with her and this time she also fights back and she ends up bashing this uh, assailant over the head. Uh, I forget what she uses to do that. She kind of just reaches... I, be- I believe it's an iron. Well, uh, a clothing she iron. she does use an iron. Yeah. yeah, first I think it's something else, but then right, she right. It's like some kind of like apple. That iron. Yeah. yeah, something that she just grabbed. And, mm-hmm. um, but she finishes him off with this iron, and um, that imagery uh, of the iron would come back later in the film as well when she's working with one and, and using the same thing. And, you know, she kind of thinks back to that and... Um, that was a nice little moment, I thought. Um, so eventually, you know, she, this leads to her cutting up the body because now she has a dead body on her hands, in, you know, putting it in the bathtub, wrapping up the body parts in newspaper in order to get rid of them. So she's kind of off on her little journey here and um, starts carrying a gun around with her, uh, a forty-five, of course. And I don't know if they mentioned where she gets the gun or if I just missed that. But I believe I believe it was the guy in the apartment. He had a gun on him. Oh, oh right, right, yeah. right, right. Okay, that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. So she, okay, so she takes the assailant's gun, um, the forty-five, and um, she starts to take a more, I guess you could call it, preemptive approach to dealing with these city scumbags that she runs into. Mm-hmm. Um, and it starts off, yeah, kind of like almost a revenge fantasy uh, type film, exploitation film, where she is literally taking to the streets with this this firearm and um uh she's just kind of taking things into her own hands and i think it's for the first time she like she feels control over the situation Mm -hmm. and i think that eventually kind of goes to her head but in the beginning um you know it's seen more as like a defensive thing um and also her the you know the path that she goes on now i've never seen it uh, although i've always meant to, to watch it but dexter have you seen that show i haven't um so i know the premise of dexter and it kind of reminds me of that where someone who exclusively uh, so in dexter he exclusively murders serial killers mm-hmm. um and in this so th- you know this is kind of like the the sort of vigilante who they feel that their methods and deeds are justified in yeah. some way um and in this case um this is someone who's been d- done wrong um t- you know i think twice in one day that'll make anyone snap in, in certain way mm-hmm. um and so, you know, this is kind of what she decides to start doing is going around and, and taking care of, of these men in, in her, her own way. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, she there's one really poignant scene early on where she writes a note to one of her friends, one of her co-workers, and she writes, I just wish they would leave me alone. Yeah. And I thought that was like really, mm-hmm. you know, even though she doesn't have any dialogue really in the film, I thought that was really a yeah. strong line to take from it. Um, so shortly after this, she has another encounter and uh, a man on the street approaches her, propositions her to make the big bucks, as he says, uh, takes her back to his place, and this does not go well for him. We see that he's a photographer with this white backdrop, and immediately this backdrop is painted red with his blood. 
um, Thana shoots him without even stepping out of the elevator. So she's pretty determined by this point. Uh, these men are not going to mess with her. So she's, um, you know, really, and then, but at this point it, is, it could still be seen as defensive maybe. Um, but I think at some point it does take that turn where she's almost just hunting these people mm-hmm. or looking for reasons maybe. Um, did you get that kind of trajectory though? From yeah. You watch it, Jeremy? Well, I think what it, it kind of becomes is like you said, it's almost like a preemptive thing where she's coming across these people and she's seeing them, you know, do these like little small actions and mm-hmm. is saying, you know, this could like this person who's willing to do this little thing could easily turn into someone, you know, like, yeah. like who could do one of those bigger, and, terrible things. And, and part of it is justified because of what happened to her yeah. and what that can do to a person's, you know, inner psyche, obviously yeah. it can be tremendous. So, so you do sympathize with her mm-hmm. in that regard. And, and that actually makes me think of, I've been thinking a lot about the anti-hero mm-hmm. um, just for my own like writing projects and things like that. I've been kind of doing research on them and, mm-hmm. and um, why, why audiences sympathize with them and root for them. I find it very interesting, you know, the, the psychology of that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, how do you see Thana at, in the pantheon of sympathetic yet extremely flawed protagonists? Do you see her fitting that, that kind of anti-hero um, mold, I guess? Yeah, um, totally. I, I think it's interesting because I almost... She, she works in a different way than most anti-heroes normally do. Because I feel like a lot of the time you meet the anti-hero and they're kind of an anti-hero from the beginning. You know, they, they kind of already like, have... Like Tony Soprano is like the, you know, the big example. Yeah, of exactly. Or like, White from Breaking yeah, or, you know, we, we, we mentioned like, you know, Tarantino before. It's like in pretty much all of his revenge films, those people are already, you know, equipped mm-hmm. for killing. They're already, you know, have had yeah. life experience. And fight. Whereas with her, it seems like she kind of, it, it's almost like... Um, what is it like the, like the killing joke where they, they talk about the, the mm. there's the line like you know any if anyone could have one bad day yeah or something like that it's, it's kind of like that where it's like it seems like this is this is a person who is you know a little bit you know on edge to begin with but doesn't seem like a violent person she she seems yeah. like she like she says she just wants to be left alone she wants to be able to just mm-hmm. move through her life but when her life is infringed upon and her you know her, her personal her, space her personal space her body yeah. is, is infringed upon she she just that like that's the that's the one really mm-hmm. terrible terrible day and from that point there's no going back so it is interesting yeah. because I, I have a hard time almost calling her an anti-hero because mm-hmm. I, I I understand the the mm-hmm. anger the whole time you know it's obviously she goes about it in the most extreme way which is also yeah. um, which is one thing I was wondering and, and, you know a movie like this I, I think it's hard to take the story at face value. Um, I, I, don't, I really don't think... Yeah. It's almost more like a fable or like a... Yeah, Yeah, because it's, it's just so explosive. It, it almost mm-hmm. seems on some level like like a fantasy. So like extreme. like if someone who yeah. doesn't have a voice, if they could just yeah. at one time just, they could just express it. Exactly. Um, yeah. So that's why like there, there was no point... The, the only time when for me she kind of felt like an anti-hero, there was one um, very brief scene where she's, she's walking around the city and she sees a couple and they're making out but they seem to be a pretty happy couple, you know? They right. seem to be having fun. And you kind of get the sense, like, they split up, you know, eat the, the guy says goodnight, the girl says goodnight, and she follows the guy home, and she yeah. you, you kind of get the sense that she's going to, like, hunt this guy. But, like, it seems yeah. like the guy was being pretty sweet and caring and nice to his girlfriend. Yeah. And so, so like, that, that was the only point where, for me where she kind of, uh, yeah. until the very end of the film, where she kind of became an antihero well, because it's like, oh, she... 
Like, if he had stayed out a little longer, would she have crossed that line and killed right. this guy who had really done nothing worse than in enjoying the company yeah. of his girlfriend? Well, even at the point of the photographer, when he invites her back to his apartment, mm-hmm. even that could be seen as, as where she makes her turn because, yeah. you know, it, depending on how you look at it. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, because how extreme is extreme, you know, like, well, so, yeah, but it's it's a little bit up for debate, but I, I totally agree with you, Jeremy. I think this movie is very much uh, in your face. I think it's very extreme mm-hmm. uh, with a purpose. I think they did that for a reason. Yeah, um, it's, it's almost like hyper realistic. Um, and because of that, you can see it more as like a fable or sort of a very dark fairy tale, which I guess most fairy tales are dark anyway, mm-hmm. um, at their core um, or the origins of them. So, yeah, that. Um, is kind of what this movie is and I think a lot of it is very extreme and I think that was done on purpose and I think but yeah it's, it's hard to say exactly where that turn is made but I think it is hard to call her uh, an anti-hero because she does take that turn yeah. um, and I am I am reminded of Taxi Driver mm-hmm. uh, with Robert De Niro's character because by the end of it you're just you just feel bad for him but you kind of are sickened by him also mm-hmm. um, because of what ha- you know what he's done um, so there is a point now at this point in the film, she starts, uh, Thana starts wearing more makeup. She starts dressing differently. So she takes a noticeable uh, change in her appearance. And I think that's symbolic as well. Yeah. Um, and, be- um, before we move on with that, I just want to make a yeah. note because the make, I just thought the makeup in this movie was phenomenal. Oh, um, and I looked up the makeup artist is a woman named Lisa Monteleone. I believe that's how it's say, mm-hmm. or Monteleone. And this was the only film she ever did. Um, really? Yeah. Which I just thought, I just thought was really interesting because yeah. she did a, phenomenal job like this like like to me when i think of this movie the first thing i think of are like like the, the, the big pouty lips and like the, mm-hmm. it's kind of like like it's almost like she's almost like cartoonishly made up in this very 80s mm-hmm. 80s vogue new mm-hmm. wave way and it's it's just so rich and and like i don't know very stylish very yeah. stylish very and and i don't know so it's just i just wanted to you know mm-hmm. in, in case she out. never gets talked about in any other context <laughs> just shout her out yeah. because she did a tremendous Definitely. job and by the time you get to the ending with the when she's wearing the nun uh, wardrobe with mm-hmm. the, the lipstick and everything, yeah, definitely. Um, so just to kind of, I'm not going to like go over every beat of the story, but just w- to kind of briefly go over what happens from you know this point on. Um, so she takes to the streets and she actually takes out a pimp who's beating up on one of the his prostitutes in the street. Um, so that's like almost like a well, like a crime fighter kind of yeah. thing, a superhero the Batman kind of yeah, exactly yeah. yeah. Th- that would not be out of line for Batman, although I guess. Well, I don't think he actually she he would, actually um, yeah. kills him or anything. So, yeah. um, actually, does she shoot him? I forget. I believe she, she does. Kind of, I believe she yeah. does. Yeah. All right. So Batman wouldn't do that, but <laughs> yeah. But the same idea is behind it, yeah, right? The so, right, exactly. Um, she actually takes on a whole street gang, so she is kind of like Batman. Yeah. Um, after this, she she's kind of surrounded by this gang and uh, with nunchucks. So, <laughs> One of them has yeah, nunchucks. Exactly. It kind of feels like a scene out of like I don't know Ninja Turtles or something. But but I, I think um, I think in New York in in 1980, just like half the people had nunchucks yeah. just walking <laughs> exactly. around. That's just kind of how it was back then, right? I just how it was exactly. Um, so uh, and then from there, she gets into a limousine. She ends up killing the people that are inside the limousine, including the driver. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that scene feels very surreal to me because it <laughs> kind of comes out of nowhere almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the meat grinder. She, uh, you know, start, the dog, uh, the landlord's dog is starting to sniff around in the apartment. So she wants to take care of that. So she, uh, she grinds up the bodies, I guess the parts of the bodies that she still has and feeds it to the landlady's dog. And um, so that's just kind of like a, almost like a very darkly funny uh, moment there. 
Um, there's a scene I do want to talk about where she meets a man in a bar and listens to him tell a story mm-hmm. about a woman who he felt wronged him, so he killed her cat. Yeah. And um, it's very interesting because she goes to shoot him right after he tells his story, but the gun doesn't fire. And he takes it and puts it to his own head, and he does it to himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, I found this an oddly powerful scene. Um, do you think it, you know, what do you think the meaning behind this scene was? Because it's, it's almost yeah. very different than any other scene. In the I movie. mean, it, it is. It is really weird because it's like, it, it, as it, that could even work as a short film in a weird way. Like just yeah, that just part. That one, and it, yeah. the tone would be, because it is, it's, it's a really tragic and like. And, it has like a beginning, middle and end in that one sequence. Yeah. And, and the, the actor who played that guy did a great job um, just in expressing that, like the melancholy yeah. and the misery. Um, it was just I don't know some, something about that scene, like you said, it's it, it's kind of like hauntingly tragic. Like like you're going through right. and you know it's a violent movie, it's a parable, and, and you're getting that. But then you kind of hit that scene and it turns into something like just like genuinely like deeply yeah. human, but not in like a nice way, like in like a, mm-hmm. a like like you feel like you kind of get like punched in the soul in a really yeah. nasty nasty way. You just feel kind of like. Mm-hmm gross and tragic mm-hmm. and like when, like when he takes the gun and it's it's like it's just such a brutal thing to watch um yeah. which you know is it, interesting because the the way you know the way the film's presented like it's like you have these brutal events that happen to her at the beginning and you have all these guys getting killed and you know the way they're killed is brutal but like you don't really necessarily feel bad for these guys mm-hmm. it's just kind of part of the movie but like him you feel yeah. bad for like it's like that guy yeah. you feel real sympathy for um, exactly. it's just a really kind of tragic tale yeah and i don't know if that was the reason they put it in there because they wanted to show you like maybe a different side of one of these mm-hmm. you know um characters that she's plans on killing at least um so yeah it's it's a very interesting scene um and even just taken out of context i think it's really powerful um and then from there we we see her um the main character thana take her landlady's dog out uh, to the river and she does point a gun at it um and you don't really see what happens it cuts away um and then from there, we kind of move on to the climax of the film, which is the office Halloween party, which is kind of we've kind of been building up to throughout the film. And uh, this is when Thana dresses as a nun. And there's something about a nun with lipstick and a gun that's just like, I don't know, something, <laughs> just some striking imagery there. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, it's really um, kind of almost co- iconic, I guess, of this film. You can't really think of it without thinking of that image. Um, and I think that image was on a lot of the posters and, and things like that. Um, yeah. Her with the so nun, the her- nun costume. Yeah, the nun costume and the makeup and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and the gun, of course. Yeah. Um, so her boss um, ends up taking her to the party. Um, and he escorts her there for one reason or another. I think he kind of holds it something against her earlier on. And then um, from there, they, he takes her into the back room. Um, and meanwhile, her landlady has found a, a severed head in her in Thana's apartment and is reporting her to detectives about her dog because now she fears that her dog is has been murdered by her um and she tells him about the office party and that's where they can find her so this is where the massacre begins um and right now i want to talk about slow motion so this is going to be a little bit of a mark rant here but um so i see the you know the technique of slow motion i see it used so much in current films uh, to me, it is one of the most overused film techniques to where it loses a lot of its appeal and, and relevancy. Um, just, that's just an ob- observation on my part. I mean, mostly like, um, you know, big Hollywood uh, superhero films and, and, you know, the big special effects films, you see a, a real overuse of of slow motion, I, in my mind anyways, is how I see it. Um, but in this film here, in the scene, 
it makes so much sense and is perfect for the climax of this film. And mm-hmm. uh, with especially with the slowed down audio effects, uh, the, the strobing lights that are going off, you can really feel that Thena has truly descended into hell. And yeah. you feel each hit each hit of the bullet, you, you feel it. And it's a little reminiscent also of the ending of Carrie. Um, although instead mm-hmm. of a prom and psychic powers, it's a Halloween party and a nun with a gun. But um, so, yeah, that scene is, is kind of, the like I said, the climax of the film. She comes out of the room after murdering her boss and proceeds to just kind of shoot all the men in the room. Um, and these are men that are just standing around. So, again, it's like, you know, they may not have even done anything wrong, you know, and she's just kind of taking their lives. So um, mm-hmm. she is definitely taking <laughs> taking a turn by this point. Um so um, and then ultimately she is stabbed from behind and she turns and sees that it's a woman. It's actually her co- co-worker, Lori, who we had seen earlier in the film. Um, and apparently she's picked up a cake cutting knife. And uh, she, so she stabs her. And before Thana falls, she says her only line of dialogue in the film, which is sister. And she just screams it. And I actually had sister. to watch it again because I, I couldn't. Yeah, sister. Um, and the movie ends with the dog returning. So she did not kill the dog which is always good in any movie when the dog does not die. Um, So maybe she is an anti-hero because she didn't kill the dog. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But that moment's kind of shocking too. when she turns and and sees that it's a woman and she kind of is conflicted. You see it all in her face again uh, with the acting there. And she just kind of pauses. And that's when, uh, you know, that's when it's all over for her. But I mean, do you, do you see that as a fitting ending for her character? I guess. Yeah. I think just that sense of betrayal is just so, kind of profound mm-hmm. there like to me at least the look is the, the look she gives uh was the corker's name Lori? he said Lori, yeah 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 and it, there, there's isn't there a, there's gotta be a Lori in every single 80s i horror. swear yeah when i, when I saw that, that i was like must have course, been a, right yeah sorry for that tangent but i swear it's like I, you watch any 80s movie there's <laughs> always a, a Lori. um but, but yeah i think i think it's kind of this moment where she's looking at her like you know don't you understand don't you have these experiences too Mm-hmm. Um, right. and, 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 you know, which is, which is interesting, you know, because it's like, we talk about, you know, any kind of wrongdoing in our culture, there, there's generally someone enabling it. It's not happening in mm-hmm. a bubble. Um, so, so to me, yeah. that's kind of that moment, like, you know, we, and we understand Lori's point of view too, because it's like, you're hanging out at a Halloween party and one of your coworkers starts shooting a bunch of people. It's not an right. unreasonable response to stop them i would say it's the most reasonable <laughs> response but it is just that that look for a moment from thana where it's just like she she's just like like it's almost like the et tu brute you know like and you like yeah. you would do this too to me you know like like no mm-hmm. like no one is here to look out for me no one would protect me um you know mm-hmm. no one would understand and and it goes back i think to that idea of her being silent you know it's like yeah. no no one's gonna listen you know, even mm-hmm. in, even in the beginning, and I think that's maybe part of it is like, like I think Lori, if I'm correct, was the one she handed the note to, right? That said, I, I just want to so. be left alone. So, yeah. so it's like yeah. so for me, that moment is kind of like you understand. I just want to be left alone, yeah. and you've been sitting here watching while this this guy takes me to this party, mm-hmm. while all these people are like standing around talking to me and harassing me, and then after all that, you literally stab me in the back. It's like that's you know, mm-hmm. yeah, she it's, does. It's kind of like a guilty by association yeah. thing. She literally stabs yeah, her in the back. So, so it's kind of, I think yeah. for me, it's kind of like a, a guilty by association. Like, how could you do that? Yeah. Um, which obviously, as, as an audience, we see it maybe, we understand her point of view. We also, like we said before, maybe see it a little differently because she walked into a party of, an office party, more or less, and just shot a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, you know. 
but it it does leave you with a lot to think about. I will say that. And um, Zoe Lund or Zoe Lund Timerless, because she went by her married name uh, towards the end of her life. Um, she did have a very sh- unfortunately short career and life. Um, she was only seventeen at the time of filming Miss Forty Five, which is kind of phenomenal too. That you know she was able to pull off such a great performance at such a young age. But I think because she is so young in the film, it also also adds to it. You know, um, but she. Um, she was sort of a collaborator with Abel Ferreira, the director. She co-wrote the script for, um, and ha- actually had a supporting role in uh, Ferreira's crime drama, Bad Lieutenant, which is a big film of his that he did later. And she, um, you know, she plays a drug addict in that film, and she was a drug addict in, in real life. She was actually a very staunch advocate for heroin. She loved heroin. Um, many quotes I saw about, you know, about her from friends were just about how much she, (laughs) like, it was not only a a love of heroin, it was actually her lifestyle. She just lived for it. And ultimately, well, actually, ironically, it wasn't even heroin. It was, I believe, an overdose of cocaine, um, that, that actually, um, um, caused, caused her heart failure at the age of 37 was when she died in 1999. Um, so she didn't do too much else artistically. I think she had some short story stories uh, that she was working on, some novels and things like that. Um, but her career, you know, she she had a very interesting, albeit short career. And um, I actually was looking, um, uh, Abel Ferreira had a quote about her um, that was just kind of like, uh, you know, it was sort of sad. He just said something like, um, uh, let me see here. Oh, yes, she said, or I'm sorry, Abel Ferreira in 2012 interview, he said, Zoe was a brilliant creative person before the drugs and the drugs just killed her so you know I, th- I think they had a really good working relationship and then things kind of soured and oddly enough um the writer of this film uh, went on a similar trajectory it seems like with abel ferrer as a as a writing partner or as a producing partner and things like that um and his name is nicholas st john is what he went by and um he's also an interesting character because he um actually went to high school with Abel Ferreira, so they, they were longtime friends and they were longtime collaborators up until the mid 90s. And he, um, he worked on him with many, you know, many of his uh, very memorable films from Jeweler Killer. Um, you know, he worked with him up, up until, you know, bo- like Body Snatchers, Dangerous Game, uh, the, you know, The Funeral. Um, so through many of his films, although he did not work on Bad Lieutenant, oddly enough, because he was a devout Catholic and saw that film as, as kind of blasphemous, I guess, mm. or, you know, repre- reprehensible, which is to me ironic for someone who worked on a film called nine lives of a wet pussy, but you know, <laughs> to each their own. Um, so I find yeah. that kind of interesting. And, and a lot of people think that's why he stopped working with Abel Ferreira. People think that they had some sort of falling out. That's never really been detailed, but uh, maybe just because of, different reasons you know subject matter or things like that mm-hmm. um because eventually he did stop working they did stop working together um but he did write a lot of his early films a lot of abel ferrer's early films and um i thought we should give him a shout including out. his his including his uh his, his nine lives film <laughs> his very first exactly uh, his very yeah. first film um but yeah abel ferrer said that uh the business just didn't really jibe with him also so i guess he just had some you know some qualms with it which is understandable. Um, so at a certain point, he just left, and he left at the top of his game. I guess you could look at it, um, you know. So, um, so yeah. And and this film, uh, once again, like I said, ironically, he was opposed to the one film because I, you know, I feel like a lot of these films are pretty gritty and pretty exploitative, and 
this film, uh, when it came out, when it was released, uh, it was released on VHS in 1983 in its uncut form. But when it was released on DVD in 2000, there were edits made uh, to censor mostly the rape scenes, but also some violence at the end uh, with the Halloween party. And uh, but thankfully, the uncut version has now been released on DVD, Blu-ray and digital. So you can view the uncut version of the film, which is always good, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, this film, um, it's definitely an Abel Ferrer film, but it's definitely an early Abel Ferrer film. Uh, we talked about the jeweler killer, Jeremy, um, and how that film, that film was definitely more of like a slasher horror thriller yeah. kind of film. And, um, mm-hmm. this film is, is, is in that same vein, kind of taking it to the next level, I thought. Um, and, um, I'm not sure how you see this film compared to other Abel Ferrer films that you've seen. Um, but I, I think it still has that same kind of street level, uh, genuine feel that a lot of his movies have, um, that grittiness that I was talking about. Um, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, like I said, these early films are more, a little more horror, a little more thriller. Um, and then he would go on to do films like, uh, we mentioned, uh, Bad Lieutenant and King of New York, you know, films like that. So, um, but how do you think this film, I guess, compares to other Abel Ferrer films and other, uh, you know, independent films from this era, I guess. I mean, yeah, I've, I've only seen a handful of Abel Ferrer films. I haven't seen all of his work. Um, mm-hmm. This one, honestly, I'd probably say is my favorite. Not necessarily favorite uh, writing and story-wise, but just kind of the, the, the gritty feel of it. I love this particular version of New York City that's presented yeah. in this film. I feel like he really captured tone. Also, that was that was one thing I was thinking about as you were talking before, is how this film, it wasn't received as well right when it was released. It kind of took a little yeah. while to gain its, you know, as we're here in cult movie called cult, cult, cult following. Right. <laughs> um, yep. And I, I think part of that might be that that New York City doesn't exist anymore. And it, mm-hmm. it the fact that, you know, if you go to New York City today, if you go to the Garment District, it doesn't feel like that. Like, like there are buildings. I, I used to work over in that neighborhood. You know, there, there, specifically there was one scene um, that was, I think, when she puts the, the body in the garbage can. And it's on Fifth Avenue and, and 19th Street. And I believe, I, I recognize the, the building, and I'm pretty sure that building currently is an H&M. Um, so it's just like like that New York. If I, I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure that's the building. Um, and and that, that New York does just doesn't exist anymore, which to me adds so much to the tone of this film because it's like, it's just it's just this, this gritty feeling that like everything well, New York is kind was of so dangerous. Much- yeah, New York was so much grittier back then. I guess much grittier. Yeah, say, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, even like walking. You know, this was this was the pre, you know, Disneyfication of Times yeah. Square. This is mm-hmm. you know, this is like the taxi driver in New York. But in a way, to yeah. me, this because this is a lower budget film. This New York actually, to me, almost felt grittier than Taxi Driver. Um, mm-hmm. To me, the, the characters of Taxi Driver maybe felt a little grittier because they were maybe developed, or not maybe they, they were developed in a more interesting way yeah. and. You know, I, I think Scorsese has uh, a way of use uh, a way of working with actors and kind of getting these performances. And you know, and there's certain things in this film. Like, I wasn't a huge fan of the landlady character; she kind of bugged me. Mm. Um, you know, yeah, so, I can see that. So, so you know, there were certain things in this film that I think kind of maybe pulled back a little bit. But I, I think that just that raw, gritty essence of mm. New York is part of what makes this this parable works so well the other thing yeah. that i really wanted to to note was uh i believe i don't know if it's delia or delia but joe delia 
is the the uh, the composer, the the musician who did the music for this film. Oh yeah, and I love the yeah. music for this film. It is so mm-hmm. cool. Same. It is so of its era, but like so gritty. There, there's that that like rough yeah. saxophone sound, particularly mm-hmm. the party, like when they're at the party. Mm-hmm. And it's just so cool. Yeah. <laughs> and one of one of my favorite um, film soundtracks is um, from uh, favorite uh, like exploitation film soundtracks mm-hmm. is from the Robert Rodriguez film Planet Terror. Um, and oh, you okay. can, yeah. you can hear the, the influence of everything Joe Delia did in this film. You can mm-hmm. hear it directly on that film, mm-hmm. um, on that music. Yeah. And, and I, I just think it's so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a yeah, good Halloween it a song. It's a good, it's all, it's a good, it, ho- is. Like, it is a good Halloween. It's like, kind of like, creepy. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like it's, I think because we, so much of this movie isn't really about the Halloween, but like, this is a Halloween movie at the end of the day. It kind and, of is. Yeah. It kind of works as well. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the climax of the film is a bunch of people in Halloween costumes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of a, I mean, it's sort of a slasher film, kind of like Driller Killer in, in a way. Yeah. It's more yeah, vigilante, it but, but it is, you know, I think what, what she becomes is more akin to a slasher in a way. Um, so, yeah, yeah and I, I totally agree with you about New York um, in the 80s and the soundtrack. I think it all comes together to really just paint this, this portrait of, um, of this woman and the story. And it's really like a snapshot in time. Um, which I think a lot of these films are, but I, particularly this one that we're talking about. And, um, you know, I asked you, how does this com- compare to other cult independent films of this era? And I think that was sort of an unfair question to ask at the beginning of our series. But we're definitely going to come back around to that um, by the end of our series. We're going to talk about how all these films that we're discussing in this series, how they all compare and relate to each other. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's going to be an interesting journey to go on. And I think starting with this film, Miss 45, uh, I think we're off... I hate to say it, but we're off with a bang. Sorry for the, <laughs> <laughs> sorry for the pun, but I had to do it. Um, but yeah, we were off to a great start, and um, we're really excited for our next one. I'm excited because I've never seen it, and Jeremy, I know you're excited to talk about this one, uh, Eating Raoul. Uh, that's our mm. next film um, film that we're going to talk about in the series, and um, so yeah, I'm excited to just see it for the first time because I've always heard about it as one of those um, you know independent slash cult films that I always wanted to see and I've never seen it. So it's I'm excited to watch it and to talk about it on the show. Yeah, definitely. Um, I can't wait. So if you'd like to watch along with us and you know listen to our discussion, we really appreciate it. So thanks again for listening to Cult Movie Cult. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any cult films you'd like to hear us discuss on the show or if you'd like to officially join the cult and be a guest on the show, please feel free to reach out to us at cultmoviecult at gmail.com. This has been Cult Movie Cult, and until next time, so long from the other side.